Welcome everybody to episode 70 of the Metabilis 2 podcast, which features myself, Ben. And David, our first big finish on the podcast tonight. We're breaking out. We're breaking out <laughs> of the TV. We're breaking out of the moving image and entering into the world that's made by sound. The images of our mind. The images of your mind. You have to use your imagination this week. <laughs> None of that. None of that spoon feeding from the goggle box. Mm-hmm. So we're yeah. going to cast way back 17 years ago to 2001. Years? Yep, Jeez, 2001. Man. January 2001 Whoa. when Big Finish released the first Paul McGann story, a Storm Warning. Storm and Warning. This is the 16th uh, Big Finish production in the main range. Do we want to just give our give our listener a little bit of background on Big Finish? I think just that'd be good since um, yeah. you, you were in the UK at the time. I was in the UK at the time, and um, the Big Finish is, um, well, they announced that they had, well, they've been around, well, uh, uh, Nick Briggs is Big Finish. Nick Briggs of Dalek, well, of all voices on New Who, um, but he started out as a fan um, producing his own audio uh, adventures, which I think are originally available on cassette tape. Yep, and he's a really good example of you know if you love what you do and you keep on doing it, eventually you mm-hmm. will be rewarded. Um, mm-hmm. And during the time when you know it didn't really look like that Doctor Who was ever going to come back in any kind of TV-based form, they bid for the rights to do Doctor Who in an audio form, and got those rights from the BBC. Um, and really, big finish have never have never looked back. Um, the first. Uh, story they did was Sirens of Time, which featured <laughs> Colin Baker and Peter Davison and Sylvester McCoy as their respective doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, so you picked it up then? Well, I bought it because uh, at the time I was like, well, come on, if someone's going to make New Who, then we should be supporting that initiative. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I religiously bought all of the big finishes all the way up, I think, mm-hmm. to number 50, when I then sort of, sort of realised that it was both expensive and also impossible to listen to them all. Um, and I bought them, you know, I've supported the range by buying the ones I fancy, though mm-hmm. at a far lower rate. Um, mm-hmm. But it really has gone from strength to strength to strength to strength. Um, the Eighth Doctor, uh, Paul McGann, that was kind of a coup for them, because, of course, mm-hmm. at the time, in 2001, um, he was the Doctor. Um, mm-hmm. He was certainly the Doctor in the comic strip in Doctor Who magazine and you know as far as everyone knew he was going to be the Doctor forever um, Mm -hmm. and getting him involved was a big deal Mm-hmm. And uh, audio drama has a, I think, a, a more wide, wide appeal in the UK. Uh, the BBC Radio Four still has dramas on regularly. That's that's a very good point. So the, the radio drama isn't really a thing in the states, is it? Not is anymore. It? it went away in pretty much the. I think the last big hurrah was probably in the nineteen. 19- 50s, early 1950s, everything switched over to television, and um, Americans generally have not been raised with audio drama if they grew up post 1960s or later. So I'll have to say, I was literally, not literally, I was metaphorically raised by audio drama on Radio 4. Spent a lot of my young years listening to plays, both uh, adapted from the stage um, and also especially written for the radio. Mm-hmm. And radio drama is a natural, a kind of a natural, uh, audio drama is a natural place for me. Um, right. And I find it very enjoyable. So uh, was it was it a bit of a stretch for you to start to listen to, to Big Finish then? No. Like, ah, where, are, where are the pictures? Ah, <laughs> ah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of quirky in that. Oh, that's true. You are. <laughs> 
True enough. But yeah, in this enough. particular quirk is, um, <laughs> it, like, I came, I came to Doctor Who from Star Wars, and so the gateway... To, oh, because uh, there was that Star Wars audio adaptation, wasn't there? There was yeah. the Star Wars audio in 1980 that National Public Radio had. Right. And so they they extended Star Wars from a two-hour movie into a 13-part audio epic. And it really captured my imagination. And, and this is 1980, so there wasn't any VHS of Star Wars that my family had. Uh, we right. had eight millimeter clips of the Star Wars movie that our public library had, so about ten minutes of Star Wars. So you right. could check that out. And, really interesting. But, but the the audio drama of Star Wars really captured my interest. And then after Star Wars, NPR aired Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, both yeah. one and Started two, audio. and yep. then there was a great dramatization of the Lord of the Rings. I love that dramatization. That was on one of my favorite things with yes. Ian Holm yep. as the original, uh, the original Frodo. Frodo, yes. And Michael Horton as Gandalf. As Gandalf, perfect, yeah. yeah. And I think Bill Nighy was in there. And just yep. a lot of really great acting talent. Amazing. And, and then in, in the United States, there, was a, a, there is a company called ZBS Foundation, which is a nonprofit out of Fort Edwards, New York, which did a lot of radio dramas that were in the early 80s picked up for uh, The Adventures of Jack Flanders, The Adventures of Ruby, which is kind of a sci-fi, sci-punk um, thing. So I grew up listening to, at the same time that I was watching Doctor Who, a lot of audio dramas. So, uh, yeah, no problems just sliding into listening to Doctor Who on audio format and... At the time that the big finishes were coming out, that's when the BBC started releasing the narrated soundtracks yep, on yep. CDs. So it all kind of uh, converged into Doctor Who is now an audio experience. Yeah, I'm. I mean, this is maybe a bit of a sidebar, but I mean, why don't why doesn't public radio do audio drama anymore? I mean, it's it's a relatively cheap way to fill up the airwaves, and you know they have those tedious shows on the weekends where people like stand up and tell a story about a thing which i just makes me want to like poke my eyes out actually my ears out um you think like why can't why can't they just put on like a big finish or something like press play and they could all go home for the <laughs> afternoon i i don't know through the 1980s there's every decreasing support for it it used to be on on national public radio stations in evening uh the nine o'clock hour every evening mm. that you'd have uh, a radio drama a, yeah. a serialized radio drama monday through friday or monday through thursday i think so uh, your first half hour might be something uh might be an episode of the lord of the rings or star wars or something from cbs and then the the second half hour might be uh, like the Lord Peter Whimsey mysteries or What Ho G's or a, um, a serialized BBC production. And that was for at least for the first few um, years in the 1980s. And it and National Public Radio decided that's not where they want to fund productions. And they vaporized without a radio company or without a, a without a radio a, a chain of radio stations to socialize it and put it on the air there was no market for it and that yeah I, it, I, it dried I, up yeah i mean i think it's just incredibly foolish i mean um 
it's a radio is a fantastic medium for drama and I would listen to plays if they were on the radio but I can't because they aren't right. um, so you know I listen to when I am when I am especially you know when you're doing like long um, mm-hmm. long car journeys and stuff like you just stick in a stick in a big finish audio and like bam you're away basically um, and they do on, on radio I mean I, I kind of lost the plot a little bit with the proliferation of, uh, of BBC radio channels in the UK but they broadcast big finish right. and you know not not just the Doctor Who dramas, but the other dramas that Big Free Finish produce, and they're one of the drama producers for BBC Radio. I mean, I guess if I was more technically savvy, or at least could be bothered, I should buy my, just buy myself a satellite radio and stick it in my car, um, and then I'd be able to listen to the BBC, but then, you know, I yeah, don't. Yeah, if, so. if you wanted to listen, like, on your iPhone or something like that, you could always stream Radio 4 on the iPlayer. That is... You can, yeah, and you can access that internationally, but it's not yeah. it's not the same. No, it's not the same. It's not the same. So, anyways, anyway, whatever. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> um, hearkening back to 2001 in the UK, Big Finish got the license from BBC. This is in the wilderness years to do licensed audio drama, and so they started producing new stories with um, the doctors from the 1980s, whoever would, I'm sure they would have loved to have Tom Baker back then, but uh, Tom wasn't into it. He was in his own personal wilderness years at that point, yeah. Mm -hmm. Davison, Colin Baker, and McCoy all doing productions. Yeah, and I mean, they extended it, you know, there was the Sarah Jane Adventures, yeah, because they they managed to convince Elizabeth Sladen to do them. It, it, yeah, it was it was it was a very great. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, they're great. Big and, finished. Um, and they and they built a a, a stable of actors or a, a group yeah. of a, kind of a repertory company. And to bring us into Storm Warning, two of those or actually three of those <laughs> actors are part of the kind of the rep. Well, actually, the entire cast is part of the Big Finish repertory uh, yep. theater. So if we. Yeah. Storm Morning was directed by Gary Russell, yep. a former Doctor Who magazine editor, editor-in-chief. Poncho, man, yep. And written by Alan Barnes. Did you recognize the name Alan Barnes? Oh, yes, yeah, so I know Alan Barnes because he was a writer of Doctor Who magazine. He was also, of course, famously and one of the Thargs, an editor of um, 2000 AD, um, Britain's mm-hmm. leading anthology comic magazine. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, Barnaby Edwards, who is one was one of the... Um, repertory a company for Big Finish played Judge Dredd in the uh, Judge Dredd adaptations that Big Finish produced in the early 2000s mm. which are very very collectible um, <laughs> if you ever see those in a second hand CD store buy them because they're like gold dust those things now anyway so in the cast like you said they they were able to get Paul McGann um, the actress who played Charlie Pollard India Fisher was in previous Big Finish productions I used and... to work with her dad uh, who, uh, hmm. Okay, so uh, the uh, let me get he. Uh. <laughs> Sorry, did I deliberately so, threw you off course there, didn't I? Yes. Uh, uh, so, okay. So you used India to work Fisher. with he was a member of Parliament, Mark Fisher. So how did you work with her dad? <laughs> um, he was the Minister of Culture um, right. when I used to work at the Arts Council. Um, ah. So we used to have we used to have meetings with him. And okay. he would say all the cultural things that he wanted to do. And I, on several occasions, I nearly said, like, I think your daughter's really awesome in, <laughs> um, in, in Big Finish stuff. But, like, I never did. Uh-huh. Because well. it didn't seem to be appropriate, to be honest, in a, in a meeting with the Minister for, uh, with the Minister for Culture. <laughs> well, I'm sure you would have liked to hear how 
uh, much admired his daughter was. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Actually, to be honest, I'm actually now just looking on his Wikipedia page. Um, he technically wasn't Minister for the Arts when she was doing Big Finish, so... Um, I there was no overlap. Then. <laughs> there possibly was no direct overlap. Anyway, so that's my piece of that's my piece of trivia there about India, <laughs> okay. India Fisher. Well, if you are still in contact with him, I'm sure we can get a India Fisher on the show. Then <laughs> 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 pulling the connection, pulling those connections. Mm-hmm. Um, and we of course all, we also we have Gareth Thomas, best known to a British listening public as Raj Blake of Blake Seven. Yes, Raj Blake from Blake Seven. Yeah, it's actual Blake. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's amazing. Just phenomenal in 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 this production. And he's a very very good actor. I mean, one of one of, I think one of the reasons why he left Blake Seven is because it was like Blake Seven and wasn't really right. stretching him. Yeah, and I did not recognize him until I I really never recognized him as as Blake the the voice. He's right. he plays Lord Tamworth Tamworth Lord and fully characterizes this air air admiral or. <laughs> Air Minister, and yeah. he steals the scenes. He is—he's is, very good. He and McGann are probably the best actors in the in this production. Yeah, yeah, and of course, um, McGann is hiding his natural Liverpool accent, mm-hmm. and Gareth Thomas is hiding his natural Welsh accent. So. <laughs> It's all about RP. It's all about putting on the voice, yes. Uh, speaking of putting on the voice, I guess India Fisher really puts on quite a quite a voice performance, uh, drifting drifting into Cockney and whatever. She does a good job. And then her very cultured voice when she's actually playing Charlie Pollard. Um, I know we also have the now infamous Nicholas Pegg is in this <laughs> as well, yeah. um, who, who, who not only went on to play various Daleks and things in mm-hmm. the uh, new series, um, but famously wrote for Doctor Who magazine as The Watcher before he defenestrated himself by <laughs> producing an obscene acrostic in response to a, um, a team building exercise he'd had to go on at the behest of BBC Worldwide and has now been sacked from everything right. to do with Doc 2. I'll actually be interested to see whether whether they get pegged back on Big Finish or whether it really is kind of persona non grata now. Hmm. Don't know because he uh, he is part of that repertory company at least yeah. in the uh, early years of Big Finish. Yeah, we have an uncredited cast member who uh, is yes, Mark Gatiss. Yes, Mark Gatiss. as the radio announcer. He, of course. Yeah. Now he was very recognizable. I I pegged. I I did a double take. You know, and sort of like, oh yes, this this voice sounds very familiar, even he, in his campy uh, radio announcer voice. I think Gatiss likes to pretend that no one can ever recognize him, but like he's completely <laughs> recognizable. He's he's like a Leclerc in uh, Hello Hello. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and of course, he would go on as as to spoiler alert be Sam Kiscart, who is the mysterious uh, master. In um, in various other big finish uh, big finish uh, um, incarnations, uh, yeah, I mean big finish is now so huge. Actually, it's not really a spoiler alert that, that Mark right. Gatiss played the master because they've had like four or five masters now. And then rounding out the cast, we have Hilton Collins who played Chief Steward Weeks, Weeks. and Helen Goldwyn who played the Treskili. So story setting, what did you think of the setting on the R one hundred and one? Quite a number of these early big finishes were adaptations of Nick Briggs's 
original audio adventures. Um, this one was not. This one this was specially written. This one was not, and I think mm-hmm. they deliberately wrote a new one. Right. Um, and uh, they had Alan Barnes go in because he had been writing the Eighth Doctor adventures for DWM, so it was a good, yeah, good pick. Yeah. However, it has it has a very Briggsian feel to it, and I maybe it's just like what all these early big finishes are like. But there's obviously you know there is a uh, they're still kind of almost finding their way in terms of how to tell stories on audio. Mm-hmm. The Doctor spends a lot of time talking to himself. Mm-hmm. A lot of exposition. <laughs> With a lot of exposition, a lot of Basil exposition there, um, <laughs> which is, you know, which is fine. But, you know, it's like, oh, yes, okay, first sign of madness. Right. So that, that kind of interests me. I mean, the, the, I'll have to say, setting the, setting the first story on the R101 is like, okay, well, that's a, like a, you know, that's a, that's a deep cut from British history <laughs> right there. Uh, um, I mean, I, I, of course, because, you know, I'm well-educated, know all about the R, the, the R101 um, mm-hmm. and its uh, companion airship, the R, hang on, what was it? 100. The R100. The R101 being, the, I think, the, the, I think the, the government-sponsored yep. ship, mm-hmm. and the R100 was private enterprise built yep. by Vickers. Um mm-hmm. The machine they, gun manufacturer, exactly, um, <laughs> and all round, all round arms dealers. Yep. And I think the idea behind the two air, airships is they would both showcase different kinds of airship technology and kind of catapult mm-hmm. Britain into the airship age. And of course, because we had an empire at that time, which kind of spanned the world, getting to India and to Australia, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you know, quicker than you and safer than you could by you could by sea was kind of mm-hmm. important, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a slightly, it's a slightly off, off center kind of left field choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think maybe more people would have recognized it if they said it on the Hindenburg, but then I guess the Hindenburg. It's not British. <laughs> it's, well, it's not British, but you know, we can all put on German accents and no one, <laughs> and no one would notice. And of course, you know, it, the, the Hindenburg was destroyed in rather less mysterious circumstances than the R101. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I, th- I mean, had you heard of the R101 before you listened to Storm, Storm Warning? Yeah, but I've been an airship geek yeah, for a long time. Yeah, we're quite people, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it was a huge, huge airship and nearly 800 feet in length. And it, it ended the British airship age. And Crash, so yeah. it, it, had, it had significance. And knowing a little bit, now I'm certain I know more about the Graf Zeppelin and the Hindenburg, the German airships, right. more than I know of the British airships or the, or the U.S. airships, Akron and Shenandoah. But I knew enough that the factual details of the, the story of the R101 kind of dro- brought me out of the drama. Yeah, it was hard to suspend disbelief because some of the basic facts were incorrect, and it wasn't so much with the R one hundred and one, since that's more of a technical thing. It's just it's little things like geography. Charlie Pollard is saying that it's just a short hop from Karachi to Singapore, and you look on the map, and it's not a short hop from Karachi to Singapore. And I, I those type of things would really take me out of the drama and it was the little details like that that had a really hard time keeping me into the story when I would hear things that would just not mesh well with my understanding or recollection of the R101. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you know, I, I, you know, the, the the main character, the Lord Tamworth character is obviously based on, on Lord Thompson, the air minister. Yep. Mm-hmm. So 
uh, you know, it's like, well, why don't why not have well, it as Lord Thompson then? That um, that was right. Why not use the historical f- figures? And I feel like we're going in reverse order here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yeah. So we'll come back to this. What did you think of the introduction with the doctor going through his library and then the the episode of the time ship and the vortizors? The vortizors. Um, good. I, again, apart from the talking to, to yourself aspect, I mean, I thought it actually it evoked very well the, the TV movie TARDIS control room. I don't know how, mm-hmm. but, you know, it felt like... It was the uh, books. It was the books. Yeah, that that's that's true, and and the sound design I think worked very well as well. I mean, the Mortisaur was like, ooh, okay, um, uh, and of course, you know, they they visit, they revisit a, you know, a time monster of some kind, you know, in the new in the new, new Who, and we already know that there's you know time. Yeah, Paul Cornell and Father's Day. In Father's Day, um, it's a little it's a little too talky, but you know, they're mm-hmm. they're trying to set the scene basically, so worked okay for me. The Vortizors really reminded me of Doctor Who magazine comics. It seemed like something you would have in the comics that you wouldn't put in the televised version just because of execution. At that time, you wouldn't want another invasion of dinosaur pterodactyl type scene. So you can easily get away with it in audio drama because you just have to have the, the sound and the acting. It was a little bit talky, and we do establish the Doctor as um, a bit of a long-winded character in this. I think Alan Barnes does a really good job. He then uses that in the final the the final scene with Rathbone, where he's Rathbone is saying enough of the chit chat and enough of the talk talk, and you're a gas bag and that type of stuff. So right. I think it I think it set it up really well. I'm not sure it was really necessary or at the length that it was with i mean i know it it all kind of fits together but it's i wonder i wonder what would happen or wonder how the story would have been different if we just would have began with mcgann stepping out of the tardis or materializing on the r101 yeah in in the hold rather than have this little bit with uh, mary shelley and agatha christie novel and that, that yeah, it's, it's, it seemed very TV movie. It was kind of establishing, establishing the Doctor as a particular kind of person, mm-hmm. um, which, again, you know, the character of the Eighth Doctor kind of developed very well throughout his, and still is continuing to develop, actually, um, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in Big Finish. You know, they were just starting out, you know, all, and all they really had was the, was the TV movie to kind of right. work on. Right. So, you know, you can imagine... Um, well, that that was that. That's the only common thread that the audience was going to bring bring into it. But yeah. I expect a lot of the first, the original buyers of Storm Morning had a pretty good grasp of the Eighth Doctor through the BBC novels and through the Doctor Who magazine comic strips. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, what, what what do you think of the introduction of, of, of so we we then are on the R one hundred one. How do you feel? What do you think of the of how all the characters come on? It's helpful in that they all have different accents, and so you have uh, silly accent number one with Weeks. You have silly accent number two with. <laughs> Lord Tamworth, and you have silly accent number three with Rathbone, so it does help the listener keep track of all the characters. Yeah, Rathbone, really, that accent is just That's like, But Barnaby Edwards' South African accent is, I don't know if it's authentic. It certainly doesn't sound like the uh, South Africans in uh, 
the Santarin experiment, <laughs> which is my reference. <laughs> the only other South Africa. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think I think it's a bit overdone. It's a little mm-hmm. bit jarring. He, he it's, I, well, it's, he's trying to play. I thought he was trying to play this 1930s South African gangster type thing with all this uh, doll and yeah, that kind of jod. I was I was thinking that maybe originally he was going to be an American of some kind, um, and <laughs> which what, the accent probably would have worked as equally as well. And they would like okay, Barnaby, do an American one. Uh, that's not that good. Uh, try the South African. Okay, better. Right, be a, be, be a South African then. But I just wonder, why not just do a, an English accent for a, a, an English intelligence officer? Yeah, it's true. I mean, you know, obviously, South Africans are always evil. So, I mean, you know, it kind of announces his evilness pretty, uh, pretty right. quickly, uh, which mm-hmm. is, is, is helpful. I mean, you know he's going to be the bad guy because he's a mm-hmm. South African. Um, and you know, white South Africans are generally evil in, in, in any kind of drama. But it worked okay. It seemed a little, again, cartoony to me with the circumstances. I thought if I was listening to this for the first time without any kind of prior knowledge, it would have taken a little bit to catch on that, okay, Charlie Pollard or Charlotte Pollard was going to be the next companion rather than you know part of the supporting cast right initially right now the other thing that threw me and i had mentioned little history bits this is supposed to take place in october 1930 and uh, george v is on the throne and so i could not for the life of me understand why she kept calling herself an edwardian adventurous a if she was an edwardian adventurous of the time why would she you would not call yourself an edwardian adventurous and so my 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 headcanon, my interpretation of this is this is a young woman who had grown up reading stories of Edwardian adventurists. And so it's sort of like, so when she says that a couple times, that that's what, that is what she's trying to emulate, not that she's from the Edwardian age. Yes, I mean, that does, I mean, I, I actually hadn't picked that up, but yeah, that, 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 that is weird. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, you know, it just speaks to kind of Alan Barnes thinking about, you know, Ryder Haggard and Dashiell Hammett and, yeah, I don't know, um, an older style ad- ad- adventuring. I mean, it does have a very, the whole thing has quite a steampunky. Well, I guess technically it would be diesel punk, wouldn't it? If it's... Um, <laughs> Petrol punk. If it's, if it's, if it's post-World <laughs> War I, um, it, has a, it has that kind of punky feel mm-hmm. to it and all it, the way through. And those type of telegraphing type things, it's telling, telling me as a listener what this person is rather than showing through dialogue or showing through action what she is and it's it's shorthand but it's really i think a awkward type writing for radio drama i think there would have been a better better way she should have been the one reading the diary of an edwardian adventuress and saying this is what i wanted you know you could work in the books like that or a different way but it just it just seemed really awkward, and it was one of the little things that had me really uh, having a hard time getting into the drama. Yeah, and I think um, I, I think this also speaks to you know this is still the early days of Big Finish, and I think they are still you know still a little bit nervous, mm-hmm. or they they want to be really sure that they're that they're telling the story right, so right. you know that you know, that characters really do 
they announce what they are before they've really had a chance to actually show what they are by doing something. It telegraphs everything, and it may help a listener who isn't uh, familiar with audio drama, but it's a non-sophisticated style of audio drama writing in my from my perspective yeah yeah the whole thing kind of is slightly unsophisticated mm-hmm. um my thought was that alan barnes was very used to writing where you would have an artist doing visuals and i felt like there's a little bit of writerly panic in there like oh my gosh i don't have someone to paint the picture so how am i going to convey this image to the listener without having the artist draw the picture very good point. Very good point. Because, of course, you know, originally he was the editor of a, of a comic book. So mm-hmm. that's exactly um, exactly how you'd be thinking. No, that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, it, as I said, it took a while for Big Finish to kind of get out of this right. rut. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll have to say that they then went through a phase when they would really, when they stopped describing anything. Um, uh, and there's <laughs> the other some, extreme, the other extreme. And there are some, some, again, the kind of mid period eighth doctor adventures, which, which are very, which are kind of hard going mm-hmm. because they're not, they don't really tell you anything. I think right. there's one that takes place in a void of some kind. And it's like, wow, <laughs> blimey. Okay. Good luck like, with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I guess it is a void, so you don't have to describe it, but it's really not helping me mm-hmm. visualize the scene. Mm-hmm. So some of the dialogue that they would have Charlie Pollard say was kind of weird. Like when the doctor's name dropping uh, Lennon and Geronimo and Tsarina and stuff, Pollard goes, well, doctor, I do declare you might be the oddest man I've ever met. And it's just, I do declare bit. And I don't know if that's supposed to be uh, 1930s ish or it just, it's, it's hard to know when there are other weird, awkward things about the writing, if this is a character affectation or a mannerism that they're trying to evoke of the era, or if it's just more awkward writing. So that's... Yeah, yeah. And I think there's an uneasy mix between kind of being the era and trying to evoke the era. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's rather more evoking of what we imagine the late 1920s, early 1930s might have sounded like rather than actually really trying to imagine what the late 1920s, early 1930s actually sounded like. Without spending a couple evenings watching 1930s cinema... You know, you you're going from memory and it, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's 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 all a little bit. I mean, it's a little bit ripping yarns. You know, kind of yeah, that Michael Palin um, hmm, comedy a little, thing. Yeah, you know, it's, it's it's all kind of very kind of self consciously. You know, here's an adventure, which right. is you know, <laughs> for Michael for ripping yarns, you know, made a lot of sense because he was kind of satirizing those things. Right. Um, uh, for this, this is not this, satire. This, this is not satire because you know we're on we're on a doomed airship where everyone dies. Or we're also then engaging with like, you know, tripartite space aliens of some right. kind. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you think of the aliens? <sighs> overly contrived? Yeah, very overly contrived. High concept? High concept. And this is the other thing that ma- it made me, it, not only did it make me think of old, the Nick Briggs um, original, you know, because his, his writing is often very very high concept it also made me think of kind of early 80s doctor who when there was a lot of you know all that kind of you know it's got to be about science mm-hmm. bidmead stuff it's just it was just too a little bit and uh, if the aliens i mean did, did they go doctor at some point i mean they no. were very no no Hel- helen they... goldwyn was very uh 
uh, I wouldn't say sing-songy, but very ethereal. In her... Yeah, they were very alien. They were like very Doctor Who alien-y, mm-hmm. um, I felt. Uh, I, and... mm, I don't know if I felt. I, they, reminded, they reminded me of the aliens in Time Flight. Uh, what were those? Oh, those ones. The, 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 the plasmoids, or whatever they were. Not called. the plasmoids, the Xerophon. Oh, Zero. Yeah, okay. Okay, so it reminded me of the aliens from Time Flight, the Xerophon, which were another concept aliens where you had the good and the bad. Here you had the good or the creator and the uncreator, and then you have the this true neutral point, the lawgiver, a, a single alien. Right. And we spend the entire part three or most of the part three in exposition so if i was giving t- individual episode titles for this part three would just be called Triskeley exposition or something because it was all about establishing this this alien culture alien society for really really a little bit too much that you would need for the story and they're pretty dull as well i mean they don't really you know i mean i guess you know they have the uncreators which are all like we're the uncreators um oh, yeah so, so you, you know, have the uh, you have pretty the, boring aliens you have the uncreator prime who happens to have a ray gun or an energy weapon and then all the other uncreators are just feral which is what it seemed like to me yeah because they were growling like you know like um like primoids uh, you know whatever you know lions i think is probably lions. what they're what lions, they were trying yes. to do like as predators uh because they was trying to tie into uh rathbone's africanness oh yeah okay that makes sense yep 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 plus then at the beginning of part four you have the callback to rourke's drift and from zulu I think the imagery that Barnes was trying to work with, with um, having Rathbone in there for South African, when using all the Springboks and the lion's going to get you, Charlie, and that type of stuff. And then the doctor saying it reminds him of Rourke Drift. So that's, I think those were the kind of thematic threads that Barnes was trying to weave in. Yeah, but it doesn't really work. A lot of new Who stories get the stick because it's love that saves the day. Like with Closing Time right. or The Lodger, the, the, those types of stories, or a lot of the Rory and Amy stories, it's love ultimately, or the, the, their commitment to each other that solves the episode, Yeah, like in Amy's Choice, etc. <laughs> I think this is the same type of get-out-of-jail-free type thing, where the uncreators are basically feral animals, and the engineers and the creators are these very highfalutin creation type things that it's it's easily solved by the boxing match between Lord Tamworth right. and the Uncreator Prime and then having Rathbone shoot the Uncreator Prime at the end. <laughs> it's sort of like you build up this whole elaborate thing just to have it ultimately solved by Rathbone killing two aliens, the Lawgiver, episode three cliffhanger, and then in midway through episode four killing the uncreator prime yeah and it's it's like a boring star trek episode you know or like babylon five or it's like one of those boring it, american yeah it is kind of like lifted from babylon five type culture it's like, oh, I, d- I don't care you know it's mm-hmm. uh, you're 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 just aliens and mm-hmm. you have an alien I, I guess it's traditional doctor who in some ways but you know the aliens are named the triskeli you know a triskeli is a thing you know yep. it's not a made-up word 
there was no connection that they might have had with the Isle of Man or with like you know Celtic imagery that really mm-hmm. wasn't explored at all. They're this gestalt kind of being that's made up of kind of different parts. Well, that happens so much mm-hmm. on the more boring parts of Doctor <laughs> Who. It just you know it just really it just it it didn't really work for me at all. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid they just weren't. They were like pretty much ho hum aliens, and I just really wanted them to get back to the crashing airship. It's like let's get back to the crashing airship. That's what's interesting. That was more dramatic. I that's thought. more exciting. Yes, exactly. And so we have the R one hundred and one in this giant flying saucer hangar. It's in the flying saucer mothership, effectively. Right. I think Barnes had some good ideas, like the how the ship moves around the people rather than they move to the certain floors, and how the 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 airship could go straight through the membrane of the flying saucer. And those type of things are interesting, and they had really good visuals and mental visuals. But he spends more time dealing with this, like you said, the society that they have, this gestalt society, than this cool stuff. Yeah, exactly. The, The cool stuff is... You know, the 1930s and airships and them meeting space aliens. And you have the ticking clock. It's a Titanic-type scenario. You know you are on a doomed vessel. What is going to happen between now and the end? You didn't need to have the alien or anything. This could have, You could have gotten away with this being a pure historical. Yeah, very, very easily. Because, I mean, you have the jeopardy then the excitement is like who lives, who dies. Obviously, the mm-hmm. doctor is going to get is going to get out okay. Right. Um, who else is going to get out with him, and how is that going to get explained away? I mean, that's right. that's what's exciting. And so that conclusion. The other thing with the R O one hundred one that really took me out of it yeah. is there were survivors of the R one hundred one. Fifty four people did not die on the R one hundred one. There were six survivors. They were badly burned some of them, but they right. showed up in the court inquest on the disaster of the R-101. So this is this is factual, and it's sort of like why we didn't have, you know, why, why Tamworth instead of uh, Lord Thompson? Why do we not acknowledge that there were six survivors? And so when we come to the ending with the doctor going, oh my gosh, I should have let Charlie, I have to put Charlie back on the airship to die. Even if we look at it inside the context of the story, how come it isn't Lord Tamworth who goes off with the Triskeli that isn't the Web of Time paradox? Or maybe it's even Mersford who should have been on the airship and right. not Charlie who got him drunk and took his place. Yeah. So yeah, why why have it be the R101 at all? Why not be it like the R26, which is the special secret R101 that no one right. ever heard of? I mean, just invent something. That's the, if you're going to invent new, new people and have mm-hmm. the circumstances of the crash be different, then why not just invent something completely different? Mm-hmm. I mean, why not? Why do invent a completely fictitious airship? Well, he um, Barnes you know. invented in a completely fictitious hotel with the Singapore and Hilton. Oh, really? But, I mean, I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. because Hilton didn't have any hotels outside of the continental United States until ni- 1949, and then that's when they opened their first resort in Puerto Rico, which is part of the U.S. So it wasn't until... That makes a lot of sense. It wasn't until after the Second World War that the Hilton Hotel franchise really expanded out, and it was partially due to America expanding expanding its influence after World War II. So the whole Singapore Hilton bit, when I kept hearing the Singapore Hilton, it just did not ring true at all. And right. so I think in retrospect, Barnes does a really good job. Big Finish does a really good job of bringing, introducing India Fisher, some Charlotte Pollard character. But 
it really has, to me, the hallmarks of a rush job writing. And the the lack of uh, attention to historical details, or if you are going to play fast and loose with historical details, like you said, do a different airship. Yeah. But if you're going to do a historical, at least get the history right. I mean, do, do, do you like a top secret Nazi airship, like filled with Nazis? <laughs> that would have worked too. That would have been awesome. <laughs> and you could have had like a good German and like mm-hmm. an, an evil Nazi German. And like, that's always fun. Of course, it wouldn't have been Nazis in the early 1930s, would it? It would have been just it would have been regular Germans. But it could have been it could have been like a Weimar. It would be a Weimar Republic German right. airship, but mm-hmm. it could have had secret Nazis plotting in it. To, right, I like, do a Nazi thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, that that's so much better. And I, I, I now understand. Yes, of course. I mean, the Singapore Hilton. That that, that, that makes no because presumably they're thinking about raffles or something or one of those you know amazing Singapore hotels that were right in the 30s. right. So, because no one had heard of Hilton in the early 1930s, uh, had they? In, he didn't in, in the 19th, yeah, he was in, in, in the 30s. He was doing like motel chain in Texas. It was just, it, yeah, right. It, right. it was, it wasn't, it wasn't the Hiltons that we know right. today. I'm thinking, what would I've done differently as a writer, as a script editor, to um, change this? So, um, I'm thinking we had the introduction of Madame Zelda as a character, but it was only an expo- exposition type character in right. uh, background. Would it have made a better hook to have Madame Zelda being the first voice dealing with Lord Tamworth and Rathbone trying to talk to Engineer Prime? Right. That type of thing, and then hooking in as your pre-credit sequence or something like that. I, I mean, this is a finished work, and it's it's been out for seventeen years. So, what's the point of second guessing the editing? Right, but, right. But I think there's a lot of good ideas in this, but it just feels like a rush job and a very professional rush job with the sound design and the acting. But I think it's let down, as so many Doctor Who things are. So I guess this makes it a really good Doctor Who thing by the script. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's 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 a it's a it's, it's an interesting, you know, if we, if we're gonna, I mean, uh, let's be meta a second for a here. I mean, if we're gonna do more of these big finish reviews, which um, I think we should, I think we should. Um, I mean, this is a this is an int- this is a fascinating one to start on because you know it shows. It showcases a lot of the um, uh, the strengths of Big Finish and a lot of the weaknesses as well. Mm-hmm. And the strengths are that everyone is super dedicated. They've got some amazing actors who are also super dedicated, but from time to time, they just do them too quickly. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can kind of record these in a day. Well, they are cranking them out at this yeah. frantic pace. Yeah, and a lot of it seems to have to do is we have actor availability now. A lot of these actors aren't getting any younger. No, they're not. And so we wanna we wanna get get what we can out while we can still do it. That's true. So, do I recommend this? I think as the the ultimate question. Yes, by all means. It's Paul McGann. This is his second acting role as Doctor Who. It, it introduces his first audio companion. Why wouldn't you want to listen to this? Yep. Just going in, this isn't the best of Big Finish's productions. This is a very, this is a very early production, and it shows its age after 17 years, especially when you can compare it to um, some of their more contemporary works. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know, again, at the time, um, you know, I certainly, you know, my purchases of these releases, I was really, um, in some ways, kind of just wanting to support mm-hmm. support this 
this initiative in some ways right. you know um i i and i remember i remember being listening to it and thinking well uh this is okay i guess but it's a bit kind of shonky around the edges mm-hmm. um I, I i i i love your uh yeah i mean your uh, your analogy your your spotting of that hilton era um is now going to make me not ever want to listen to this ever again because <laughs> um, yeah that is super irritating oh my mm-hmm. god yeah um that combined with episode three of the Triskeli exposition, yeah. it just, Boring. it was hard to get into it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think so. I think but, so. But um, it did have some really good points. I think the sound design was very good. Alan Barnes had some really good lines in and I have on my notes here um, when the doctor was talking to Charlie about a million planets circling a million suns Charlie where the starlight makes colors the human eyes have never seen that's a really good eighth doctor line and it really I think captures the essence of the McGann doctor so there are gems in this it's just you have to dig them out of the rock yeah yeah yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. And you know, these these audios are worth they're worth persevering with. And mm-hmm. you know, when it all comes down, the Eighth Doctor is an amazing Doctor. Paul McGann is fantastic, um, right. and uh, India Fisher is is fabulous as a companion. There's mm-hmm. a there's a real depth to her character as it develops, because of course it develops over many, many, many hours of drama, right. um, which is great. Yeah, yeah. So little, little harsh, I guess, but I think it's uh, not undeserved. Harsh but fair. Harsh but fair. Yeah, like Judge Dredd. Yeah, harsh <laughs> but fair. That is that's what that's one of his catchphrases. Mm-hmm. He's harsh but fair. Um, well, there you go. Um, uh, so are, are, we, are we going to are we going to do another one of these? Or are we, should we should we should we trail it? I think next month we will do a Sword of the Orion, which is um, an audio visual script turn into a big finished production. Yeah. And uh, if if I can persuade you, I'd have you listen to both. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe uh, we'll see. <laughs> I'll, I'll give it a go. I'll give. It, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Well, um, I think that's that. We've killed another hour of yep. um of Doctor Who discussions. A slightly a different one from usual. I hope our regular fans have been intrigued if they've not <laughs> listened to Storm Warning before to maybe maybe give it a go. I think mm-hmm. uh, downloads are like six bucks or something. No, it's even really, cheaper. It's three. Is it? three, three pounds? Three dollars. Uh, three dollars. There you go. I mean, so I mean, it's three dollars. That's less. You know, that's a. That's a cinnamon pumpkin latte or whatever at Starbucks. <laughs> so download it, give it a whirl, see what you think. You know, mm-hmm. some of these people, I mean, Gareth uh, Thomas is no longer with us. Mm-hmm. Um, so and, uh, he, and he is worth the $3 he right is there. worth the $3. He is an absolutely stonkingly good actor and we miss him very much. Yeah. Um, well, cool. Uh, uh, I think, uh, yeah. we, are, we, are we ready to sign <laughs> off? Uh, so thank you for listening to episode 70 of the Metabulous 2 podcast. I have been talking with Ben. And I have been talking with David. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Good night.
Thank you for listening to the Metabilis 2 podcast. You can reach us with email at metabilis2, as a number two, at gmail.com or on Twitter at metabilis2. And again, that's a number two. Hope to hear from you. Bye. Yeah, I'm Jodie. I'm, I'm sometimes the doctor as well.